Mick Dittman is squeezing through on naturalism's emanations there with heroicity and here comes Viander Cross, Viander Cross down the outside is motoring home, naturalism the leader, Viander Cross inch by inch is wearing him down, naturalism still in front, he ran out near the line but naturalism wins at a half This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Pride's Easy Feed. Do any of your horses struggle to finish their feeds during a racing preparation? Have you been unhappy with the way they look on race day? Do what many other trainers do with those finicky horses and introduce them to Pride's easy performance by stimulating their appetites with Pride's highly palatable set recipe feed you might find they're not leaving a flake in their feed bins. Correct nutrition helps racehorses to deal with the stresses of racing and training. It helps them to get that elusive win when they're in the right race, and most importantly, helps them to bounce back after the event. Pride's Easy Performance provides the ultimate muscle fuel to help horses get to the line while helping them to maintain inner health. Pride's Easy Performance, the complete nutritional feed for equine performance athletes. There was a time when a riding engagement would be locked in by a trainer yelling to a jockey as he rode by in semi-darkness at early morning track work. Perhaps a tentative booking could be made during a race meeting when jockeys and trainers have a lot on their minds. Back in those days, jockeys were known to take two rides in one race or completely forget their hurried conversation with a trainer. That's the way it was done when race meetings and barrier trials were much less frequent than they are today. In the modern era, it's not uncommon for jockeys to ride at four or five meetings a week, requiring many hours of travelling. On odd days, some of those riders have to juggle barrier trial commitments. The evolution of jockey management was inevitable. Today, there are 40 registered jockey agents in New South Wales alone. Some manage one rider, others five. It's a job requiring long hours, an understanding of race form, round-the-clock alertness and communication skills. Victorian-based Matthew Alessi is one of Australia's most successful jockey agents. He's just had a year off, during which time he competed successfully on a famous TV quiz show, but he'll soon resume duties in Melbourne. Matthew himself had a short-term career as a jockey, inspired by his older brother Fabian, who rode close to 700 winners. Matthew rode 15 winners himself in three years before increasing weight put an end to his dream of following in Fabian's footsteps. Jockey management seemed to be a natural progression for a young bloke who, at 10 years of age, was ringing around chasing rides for his brother. Matt has managed only eight jockeys in his 18 years in the business. Seven talented male riders and one Group 1 winning lady who only recently joined the ranks of motherhood. Matthew joins us on the podcast. Thanks for your time, Matt. Great to catch up. You're welcome, John. Thank you for having me on the podcast. It's a pleasure, mate. Well, after 18 years without a break in a very demanding business, you chose to take a year off. It also gave you the opportunity 
to spend some time with your 77-year-old dad, Charlie, who's experiencing some health problems. That's correct, John. Um, I've actually been involved in racing for 30 years. I'm 38 years old now and mm. started going to races as a young boy, watching Fabian ride. So just made the decision after a few personal things, obviously my dad being unwell and, and all that kind of stuff, to just press pause for 12 months and put myself first for once. And it's, looking back in hindsight, it's probably the best thing I've ever done because mm. I've just been able to really get the fire back in the belly and looking really forward to resuming jockey management, which I do love. Your dad's life story is so typical of Italian men of his generation. He left his native Sicily as a 24-year-old in 1969 to resettle in a country where he knew hard work would be rewarded. And work he did. Charlie was a bricky and a very good one for 50 years, you tell me. Yeah, that's right, John. Uh, my father, he was a bricklayer in Italy and then made the move to Australia in 1969, as, as you've mentioned, and... Yeah, he was a bricklayer for probably 55 years, so mm. um, hard worker, built a lot of houses, but we didn't have any background in racing. So for Fabian and myself to venture into that, it was quite odd, but um, it's the best thing was ever done because it's been very good to us. You tell me one of your dad's current pastimes is to listen to our racing podcast, and that pleases me greatly, Matt, because it allows me to send him a cheerio call. Charlie, yeah, thank thanks. You for that. Yeah, thanks for your support, Charlie. I hope this message finds you coping as well as can be expected and enjoying the love and support of your wonderful wife, Sylvia, your two boys, and your daughter, Belinda. Nothing like yeah. a strong family when you're not well. We're very close being an Italian family, very close knit, and we do a lot for each other. And with my dad having Parkinson's disease, it just has slowed him down considerably. And he spends a lot of time lying in bed, but I know your podcast, having to listen to him each and every week, just give him a little kick along. I'm so, delighted. Yeah. Delighted to he'll, hear it, Matt. I think he'll look, he'll look forward to this one, hopefully. Now, Matt, before we talk racing, I'd love to hear about your profitable appearance on Eddie Maguire's Millionaire Hot Seat. How were you feeling when you got back into the chair for the last question of the night for $50,000? That was amazing, John. Um, it was actually my only entrance into the chair. I got in for the last question. Mm -hmm. um, it was a show that I've always watched growing up and I always wanted the opportunity to appear on there. And it was actually quite a lengthy process to get on the show. It was, it was a six-month process and quite a few rounds of auditions. Mm -hmm. But the, the year off enabled me to have the time to be able to do that. And to make it on the show was a thrill. But to get in the chair and play for $50,000 was an even bigger thrill. Mm. And, um, yeah, to lock in the correct answer with about 1.2 seconds left on the clock was um, meant to be, I think. <laughs> Nerve-wracking. Now, what was the question? It was actually a music question. It was um, had to do with uh, a guy called Steve Jordan, an American producer. Um, he became the drummer for Witch Band in 2021. Mm. And obviously there were, there were the four answers and I was looking at one, one answer and then I don't know what came over me. I think, I think uh, divine intervention, God whispered in my ear when it mattered and 
enabled me to lock in the right answer, thankfully. Oh, good stuff. It was a nice little pickup, wasn't it, at a time when you had no income flow and it was tax-free. Definitely, yeah, tax-free in um, Australia. Um, it's not like that in other countries of the world, but obviously a very famous show and, yeah, just a dream come true t- to be able to be able to win that, that kind of um, prize and, and just the actual thrill of, of, of com- competing. How did you get on with Eddie? Eddie was fantastic. He was he was really down to earth. He, he made me very much at ease, and yeah, he he was great. I, I can't speak highly enough of him. You were about seven when Big Brother Fabian started to ride in races, and obviously you went to watch him frequently. And you Correct. soon got hooked on the theatre of racing. Did you make up your mind to become a jockey in those days? Most definitely. So I, I, my introduction into racing was going to the races each and every week and, and the odd day off at school to, to just watch Fabian ride. Um, this was in the beginning of 1992. I was only seven years old at the time. And, yeah, very, very soon I just wanted to be like him. And I loved the animal and I just loved the theatre of the whole race day and, and what it entailed. So very early days I decided that's what I wanted to do. The only hindrance was Fabian was a lot smaller than me. Mm. And as I, as I got older... I had a lot of people telling me not to go down that path because it, it wasn't going to work out due to, due to my height and weight. Hmm. It wasn't long before you were on the phone trying to line up rides for your brother and you tell the story of the day your mum introduced you to one of the trainers you'd been ringing. He got a hell of a shock. Yeah, that, that's a very funny story, John. So um, we're at the races one day and I would have been only 10 or 11 years old and Fabian was riding for a train. I can't recall his name at the time. Um, and he, he mentioned to my mum, oh, your son's doing a terrific job calling for Fabian's rides. Um, I've never met him, though. And my mum goes, oh, that's him right here. And obviously <laughs> I was only a little, little tack. I was only 10 or 11. Yeah. And he said, no, 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 no your, old, your older son. And my mum goes, I only have one older son. That's Fabian. My other son's this, <laughs> this young boy here. So... He nearly fell over when he, when he saw it was me. But um, yeah. back in those days, you didn't need to be licensed. It was very different to what the job is now. Yeah. And I'd get home from school and you'd, you'd get the winning post and there'd be horses with no jockeys. And and it wasn't text message like it is now. It, you actually had to get on the phone and, and call. Mm. And I've always been that, that kind of person where I've never been afraid to pick up the phone and talk to someone. So it, it was mm. really good because – it helped me for when I was a jockey and then obviously it held me in good stead for once I, mm. I uh, branched into to what I'm doing now, which is, which is my full-time job. Mm. Fabian spent his entire apprenticeship with John Marr at Flemington and he stayed on with John after coming out of his time. You tell me he rode 148 winners for John Marr alone. Yeah, that's a, that's a great number of winners for, for one stable, especially um, John only training in Australia for eight years of Fabian's career. So um, he was a great supporter of Fabian. Um, and I obviously ended up being great friends with one of John's sons, Daniel, who's a, who's a great friend of mine, who's um, doing great things in Singapore. He's actually training probably the best horse in Singapore, Singapore at the moment, Lim's Kosciuszko. So, yeah, um, yeah. yeah he, wrote, he wrote a lot of winners, Fabian, for John, and then obviously went to Singapore with him and rode there for a year. But, um, yeah, 700 winners in his career, a lot for one stable and we're very proud of what he, what he able to achieve, obviously yeah. coming not from a racing background. Fabian didn't get to win a Group 1, but he did win the Swetnam Stud Stakes in Adelaide, which is now a Group 1. He rode that very nice mare, Rain Dance Lady, 
for David Hall and she was one of his favourites because she won seven in all and Fabian rode her in the lot. Yeah, that was amazing how he was the only jockey to um, win on her. She actually had quite a few other riders ride her and they just weren't able to click with her. Obviously, being a mare, she was, had her idiosyncrasies and a little bit little bit um, difficult to get along with. But mm. Fabian and her just jowled and... Yeah, I think maybe two years after he won that that feature race, they, they turned it into a Group One, which is now called the Robert Sangster. So, mm. what could have been? But in saying that, um, he was able to ride so many good horses in his career, which which is a feather in his cap. Mm. Well, let's look at some of them. He had two rides for two Flemington wins on a million dollar earner called Dark Czar for Peter Hayes. That horse won thirteen races all up. Um, he was a very consistent galloper, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. He, he was a really good horse um, in his prime. And again, Fabian, Fabian did win two races on him, so that, that was one of many good horses he did ride. He, he also rode Fra for the, for the Lindsay Park Stable, who went on to win a Caulfield Cup, mm. um, and, and, and many other horses, which I'm, no doubt you'll mention. Well, Maccabi Diva is one of them. He rode the great mare at her very first start in a race at Benalla, finishing fourth. He never got on her again, but I'll bet she's got a mention at one or two dinner parties. Yeah, that's right, John, definitely. So um, obviously riding a, a champion racehorse like her to first start is just an amazing moment in his career and one he'll never forget. Mummify was another good horse he rode, a four-time Group 1 winner. Fabian rode Mummify in a maiden at sale, ran third. Yes, that was on debut for memory. Um, ended up being a very strong maiden. Ran, ran terrific. And that horse obviously went on to be a Caulfield Cup winner as well. So definitely a, a great moment as well. Well, here's one I bet he talked about more than once. Mahogany, winner of eight Group 1's. Terrific little horse. Fabian rode him at his third race start for a third to Sequalo down the straight at Flemington. Yeah, Sequoia ended up being a multiple group run winner, so that was another occasion where it was a only a, a restricted race, but high-quality race. Um, we actually have a photo of Fabian riding Mahogany that day. Um, I, I know he looks at that photo fondly from time to time, obviously riding such such a great horse for a powerful person as uh, Mr Lloyd Williams. So mm-hmm. Mahogany is very underrated looking back. Not many horses win two derbies and two lightnings, so... He's one horse that probably doesn't get the accolades he deserves, but no doubt um, he was a champion in, in his own right. That's hard to get the head around, isn't it? Two derbies and two lightning stakes of a 1,000 metres. Unbelievable. Incredible. Fabian Road hit the roof twice for David Hall. A few months before he won the Victoria Derby, he ran second at a Tuca on the horse and he won a race on him at Flemington. Yeah, he had a big opinion of Hit the Roof, Fabian. He'd done a lot of work on him leading up to, to those races. Um, obviously, he was riding for David Hall once John Ma left for Singapore. And he rode quite a lot of winners for David Hall. He would have rode probably around 50. Mm-hmm. And Hit the Roof was one that, that he identified early, and, and he actually did think he could win the derby. Mm-hmm. It was just a shame that um, Glenn Boss was elected to ride the horse and not, not taking anything away from anyone, but that's probably a, a uh, what could have been moment. Let's look at your time as an apprentice jockey. You started out working on the ground at John Mars Stable on weekends and during school holidays and you couldn't get there fast enough. 
I absolutely loved it. It was just something I looked forward to every school holidays and also on Saturday mornings. Um, I didn't I didn't go in on Sundays, but um, Saturday mornings. And I didn't ride any horses. It was just mainly learning how to put a saddle on a horse and a bridle and leading them up to the track. So it was a great in- introduction for me. And then once I did make the decision to be an apprentice jockey, that's when my time officially started with Mike Maroney at Flemington. Mm. But looking, looking back now... Um, it was actually quite difficult for me to get licensed as an apprentice. I, I was knocked back initially due to my weight. I was 57 kilos and they just said, you're too heavy. And I was absolutely shattered and I had to just bide my time for a year and thankfully I was able to get on a bit more of a proper diet and, and a bit more of an exercise diet and I was able to get my weight down to 51. And I remember the um, apprentice school were quite shocked that I was able to get that light. So yeah. um, I was very thankful for them giving me the opportunity and although I had a very short career, I know now that it's held me in terrific stead for the job I do now managing jockeys because I'm able to have that relate to how, how they're feeling with riding in a race, the wasting side and all the ins and outs. So it's, um, it's, it's something that I have as an advantage to me being a jockey manager that mm. I, have been, I have been there, although only briefly. Mm. I have still experienced, and, and I actually got to know all the jockeys very well as well. So, obviously, that helps when you're trying to attract new clients. Mm. As your weight came down, you were lucky enough to find a great riding instructor in the legendary John Patterson, Clark of the Course. You struck it lucky there. I did, yeah. He was terrific for me, Pato. Um, everyone knows how famous that name is in racing. And, he, he taught me how to ride. It was probably the toughest summer of my life. I went down there for, for three months and I was there every day and we just in the um, sand roll and just getting my balance and, and all that kind of stuff that is obviously very important. So mm. I'm very thankful for, for what he did for me and it was something I needed because you just can't go into riding racehorses without any sort of background. Like Although I did love racing and, and I was attending the races at, at a young age, I wasn't a part of equestrian or pony club or anything like that so mm. um yeah it, it, it was great your first winner came at your 16th ride the horse was called joko city at horsham i think mick mcglenn was the trainer yeah it was only a hobby trainer at mick he, he trained uh, at mildura for memory so um actually that was my only ever ride on jocosity um she was a lovely mare she gave me a great ride that day and was at Horsham, very short straight Horsham. We just got there in, in the nick of time. I was one out, one back. I peeled out and didn't think I was going to get there, but it was a, it was just it was a massive thrill once I hit the line and mm. and uh, I knew I'd, I recorded my first victory. It's a bit di- bit different now with the young kids. They mm. they they uh, they get a good go on, on chances early, but back, back in my day, you sort of your first ten or ten or so rides would be horses at the back, and you just learning how how it was all going, and they'd be twenty thirty to one. Mm. So she was one of my first real chances and, and it was just great to be able to capitalise on that. Mm, I think I pronounced her name incorrectly. It was Jocosity, was it? Jocosity, that's correct. Mm. You got to ride for some very high-profile trainers during that short career, didn't you? Yeah, I did, yeah. It's something I, I look back fondly on now. Mick, Mick Price was very good to me. He gave me quite a few rides. Um, I was only a three-kilo claiming boy and obviously he didn't know me because I was apprentice at Flemington and Mick trains at Caulfield. David Hall, Tony McAvoy, I rode for those stables. So um, although, like I said, I only had a brief career and it was very stop-start because every every ride I had, 
Mm. I, I had to wait and, jeez, I wish I had the benchmark racing now. Oh, yeah. um, I mean, yeah. back, I mean, back then what they do now because that, that, that weight scale would have just appealed to me. So it, it was tough, but I'm glad I did it and it's something that I'll always cherish. You spent the last year of your apprenticeship with Dean Lawson, who's right out of racing nowadays, but not before he got to train the brilliant Test of Rossa to a Magic Millions win and six other Group 1 races, and he's gone on to become a super sire, hasn't he? Oh, most definitely. Test of Rossa is just an unbelievable horse. Um, he achieved so much on the track, and Dean was just a great guy to be apprenticed to. Um, my time started a little bit after Testarossa, but um, he gave me quite a lot of rides, Dean. I, did, I, I rode a couple of winners for him. It was just a shame that my, my weight curtailed um, a longer association with him and his father, Ray. Mm. You never rode second coming in a race, but you rode him in a lot of work for Mike Moroni, and you've got no doubt he's the best horse you've ever ridden, but he had a bit of a downside. He could hang on a bit, couldn't he? Oh, most definitely. I think when I say I rode him in work, I think he, I think he took me on a merry-go-round ride because <laughs> well, I remember one morning vividly he just absolutely took off and um, yeah, so it was it was amazing to feel a horse of that quality. Um, so yeah, he's probably the best horse I threw a leg over. Late, later on in life, I, I did I did combine jockey managing and riding track work. So I was riding track work for Lindsay Park for a couple of years and mm. did get to ride in a coney a little bit in track work. He was he was just a gentleman, mm. so quiet and. Yeah, he was another good also. I got, I got, I got to ride. Unfortunately, race day, being a three kilo claim and a present, I didn't really get many opportunities to, to ride um, high profile horses. I left that to yeah. Fabian, but um, yeah, it, it's 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 a great thing to look back on now. When you rode Nakoni in those track gallops for Lindsay Park, I bet you never dreamed he would one day sire a horse like Nature Strip. Yeah, incredible. So. Um, he was a terrific sprinter in his own right, but he's, he's obviously gone on to be a terrific sire as well. So very intelligent. I remember him being a very intelligent horse and, um, yeah, lots of ability. Just going back to second coming for a moment, you picked him out as a potential top-class horse and how right you were. He beat Ty the Knot in a Victoria derby and he finished up running third to his stable-made brew in the Melbourne Cup. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that was that was a great moment for for Mike in the stable. That, that was probably a year before I um I, I began my apprenticeship. I began my apprenticeship yeah two thousand and one, and um I think that was two thousand or ninety nine. So great mm. moment for Kerry McAvoy to win on Brew. Yeah, and second coming running third. So mm. um terrific horses. You had your last race ride at Geelong on one of Dean Lawson's, and as you came back to scale, you knew it was all over. But you had no yeah. doubt about the direction you wanted to take. Definitely, yeah. Jockey manual was always something that was going to suit me. Um, and it's the best decision that, that I've made because I've been able to make some great jockeys, form, form some real good friendships and relationships, and it's been very successful. Matt, we'll pause for a break on the podcast. When we come back, we'll talk to you about the jockeys you've managed over a period of 18 years. Back with Matthew Alessi after this. There are three more stakes races to be run this year in New South Wales, beginning with the Group 3 Summer Cup 
at Royal Randwick on Boxing Day. First run in 1890, the Summer Cup has had three changes of distance throughout its history, with the current trip of 2,000 metres being introduced in 2013. The three most notable horses to win the Summer Cup in the last 50 years jump off the page. The 1976 winner Ming Dynasty went on to win two Caulfield Cups, two Australian Cups and a Metropolitan. In 1984, the Bathurst-trained Rising Prince won the Villiers Summer Cup double as a precursor to his subsequent victories in the Queen Elizabeth, the Cox Plate and the McKinnon Stakes. Those who saw Superimpose win the 1988 Summer Cup couldn't have imagined what lay ahead. The great horse went on to win eight Group 1s, including two Doncasters and two Epsoms, a history-making feat which will take some beating in the years ahead. Two days after the Summer Cup meeting, the Gosford Race Club will host a big crowd of Central Coast holiday makers when they present the Group 3 Bell of the Turf and the listed Gosford Guineas. It's a great day out at the Gosford Entertainment Centre. My special guest is jockey manager Matthew Alessi from Melbourne. Well, you kicked off with brother Fabian and Daniel Moore, who you met initially, I think, at the Lawson Stables. Yeah, that's right. Daniel was apprenticed to Ray and I was apprenticed to Dean and we, we rode track work every morning with one another. So once I... Um, Stepped into the jockey management ranks. Daniel was very keen to come on board and we were able to combine for, for quite a number of winners. Your next client was the very talented James Winks, who was forced into premature retirement a couple of years ago when he was diagnosed with a condition called syncope. He had no option but to give it away. Yeah, that was sad to see. Winks is one of my good friends and we, we grew up riding with one another as kids and... I had the opportunity to manage him for about a year or a year and a half before he um, ventured overseas. So, mm. um, yeah, it's just very sad for him to have to put an end to his riding career because he's obviously highly talented. Oh, my word. He won well over 800 races. He won five Group 1s and his best days were yet to come. He's now mentoring young jockeys, I hear. Yeah, he is. Yeah, I know he's getting a great kick out of doing that and um, he's, he's doing a terrific job doing it. You managed Ben Mellum for 14 years and you became a great team. You were instrumental in getting him on 18 Group 1 winners, including Black Caviar in the 2010 Patanak Farm Classic. I think that was his first Group 1, wasn't it? Yes, it was, John. Yeah, I, I, know, I know he got a massive thrill out of it that day, and, and as did I and, 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 he, and his mother and father. So, um mm. Yeah, Ben's my longest-serving client, 14 and a half years. So um, we've been together through through thick and thin. We're very close. And when I started managing Ben, he just came out of his apprenticeship. And obviously when you come out of your apprenticeship, you sort of need that little bit of guidance. And I'm a little bit older than Ben. And thankfully I was able to give that to him. And yeah. we're, very, we're very close and we're working well with one another. And I have the utmost, utmost respect for him as a rider. He's just... The, the talent he possesses is just a gift and um, his record speaks for itself on the track. That was his one and only ride on Black Caviar. Can you remember what he said to you about her potential? Yeah, I remember vividly after he um, rode her to that great win, he just said, she's a freak. Did he? And he was proven right because 
I don't think we'll see a horse win twenty five and twenty five ever again. Mm. And I think that I think that win that he had on it was probably only an eighth or seventh or eighth start. Early on, yeah. Ben got a big buzz out of a golden slipper win on an absolute bog track at Rose Hill in two thousand and seventeen. That was incredible. Um it was an amazing ride from from his first ride on that horse all the way to the Golden Slipper. Um, he had identified her as a Golden Slipper winner very early on. Um, Gary did a great job training her to get that win, and just the ride Ben was able to give her that day was just incredible. How he was able to save all the ground and um, get that famous victory. Yeah, and she will reign was the first of two slippers for trainer Gary Portelli, who won it again this year with Fireburn. Now, Ben's record is pretty good as it stands, but can you imagine how good it would have looked if one or two of his Group 1 placings had been able to win? There's a stack of them. Yeah, it's just amazing the amount of placings he's had in Group 1 since that Golden Slipper victory in 2017. I'll run you through them quickly, John. Mm. He's finished second in the Melbourne Cup. Which horse? Yep. Second in the Caulfield Cup on Holmesman. Mm-hmm. Second in the Cox Plate on Armory. Mm. Second in the VRC Derby on Stars of Karen. Yeah. And second in the VRC Oaks on Salto Angels. So yeah. you get a couple of those victories, your CV looks a lot better. Oh, yeah. Second's better than last, but it's frustrating nevertheless. No, no doubt. Matt, you did a good job for Ryan Maloney over a long period of time before he opted to head to Queensland. Yeah, Ryan, I managed him for 11 years. Uh, we're very close, st- still good mates to this day. He's a very talented rider, Ryan, and once he made that decision to relocate to Queensland after getting offered a position there, mm. I had no doubt in my mind he'd be leading rider there because obviously Victoria's very very competitive and he just struggled to get the looking that his talent deserved and I'm just I'm so thrilled for, for what he's been able to achieve over there. Now to the very gifted <clears throat> Caitlin Mallion who was still claiming three kilos when you became her manager. Yeah, that was that was just incredible. I, I was Caitlin's one and only ever manager throughout her whole entire riding career, and she was just a dream to manage. Hmm. Um, her clock in her head to be able to rate horses on front runners was just incredible. Hmm. And I know Lloyd Williams took a shine to her, purely based on that fact. Hmm. And she was able to... Ride a lot of winners for Lloyd and have a ride in the Melbourne Cup, which was, which was incredible for her. And we also combined to win two Metro Premiership Apprentice titles, which mm. doesn't very really um, get done. You, you may win one, but mm. to be able to to be able to win two, and in between her first and second victory, she had that nasty fall at Flemington that mm. put her on the sidelines for ten months. So that's just an amazing achievement that she was able to do, and um, it's something I look back on now. Um, yeah, very fondly. Mm. A sign was the horse she rode for Lloyd Williams in a Melbourne Cup. Yes, that's right. She'd won the um, Herbert Power Group 2 race on Corville Cup Day leading, leading into into the Melbourne Cup. Mm. It was a huge thrill for Caitlin and for yourself when she won the Group 1 William Reed on Silent Sedition. Incredible moment. Um, I think to this day she's still... He's the only female rider to have won a Group One at Mooney Valley, and that night, the the way that race unfolded was just just perfect. So mm. um, she hit the front, and thankfully she held on. It was just 
it was just an amazing moment. And mm. thankfully, I was on track that night and were able to get a photo after the race with Caitlin and her silks. And it's it sits proudly in my in my office um, room. Yeah. And um, I, I know it was a big goal of hers to to get that Group One win, and it was just it was so pleasing for her to be able to achieve that. Hey Matt, I wonder if she ever reminds her partner James McDonald that he's not the only one in the joint who's ridden a Group One winner. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe not. I know James is very humble, so even though he's ridden 72 or 73 or around that number that he's ridden, um, he'd say Caitlin and him are equals. So um, yeah. yeah, it's just great. It's just great that they've been able to link up and have a have a have a little girl, Evie. Yes, Evie, born only what a month ago. Special time for both. Yeah, definitely. So it's just an incredible moment and um, I haven't had the opportunity to meet her yet, but no doubt I will very soon. So um, yeah, look forward to that day. One of the hardest workers you've ever managed is a bloke called Billy Egan, a native of Mansfield and a nephew to that great horseman, Gerald Egan. They can ride those boys from the high country, can't they? Oh, most definitely. Billy's just an incredible rider um, and a horseman, basically. So... His um his worst ethic is just second to none, and I can confidently say he's the hardest working jockey I've ever managed. So he just the track work he puts in, the hours driving to all over the state, and then backing up and even doing night meetings. So yeah. I've, I've been managing Billy for about three years, just prior to me having yeah. that break. And when I took him on, he hadn't had a manager for two or three years because he's obviously he's linked with the Patrick Payne stable and was just sort of happy just riding Paddy's horses mm. and just and just making a couple of calls himself and then he sort of made the decision that he better get a manager and I took him on and I was just blown away just just how hard he could work and our first season together we combined for 111 winners so it was just incredible and that was due to mm. the fact just Billy he was willing to go to places like Wangaratta for six rides and then drive the two and a half hours to Moon Valley night meeting and have another four. So mm, mm. it was just incredible. And I, I know those 111 winners was just something that took him by surprise, but mm. it was just purely down to his work ethic and what he put in. And it's just something that is just incredible to, um, mm. yeah, to, to be able to do as a jockey. Mm. That work ethic you're talking about is best illustrated by the little story uh, where he rode – 29 out of 31 days he was at the races. Yeah, yeah, that month. I think it might have been the month of April, yeah. So he, he was keen to get to the 100 winners mark. It's something he'd never achieved before. And he was just willing to put in the hours and, and the rides and the time. And I think he rode 26 winners that month, mm. um, yeah, from 29 days. And and then that, that actually held him in good stead come the spring because he, he hadn't ridden in the Corfield Cup, he hadn't ridden in a Cox Plate, and he hadn't ridden in the Melbourne Cup, and were able to tick all those boxes in the one spring. So, mm. um, yeah, he was he was thrilled. He was able to ride in those races, and also finished second in a VRC Derby on Southern Moon, and second in a Galaxy on Miss Leonidas, which was just pipped on the line. So, mm. hopefully, he can he can get that Group One that he uh, richly deserves. You'll be back in action in a month or so. Have you locked in some clients? All, all, all things being equal, it's looking like those guys will, will return to me, thankfully. So um, Ben Mellum and Billy Egan? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so yeah. I'm very grateful if um, if that occurs, but all, all things are looking promising and just sort of looking at a couple of other guys to just get the 
get the team to, to, to three, which which would be a good number. Um, I never like having too big a stable in, in my in my clientele because I put a lot of time and effort into each and every one of them, and I just think sometimes you just need to prioritise quality over quantity, and mm. it's the mindset I've had from my very first days managing, and it's helped me in in, um, in good stead. So, um, yeah, looking really forward to getting back into it. Let's look at an average week in the life of a busy jockey agent. For one thing, there's no such thing as a day off. No, it's 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 a lifestyle, not a job, and that's just racing for for anyone in general who works in the industry. It's seven days a week. It's there's night racing, there's official trials, there's unofficial jump outs. So it's very full on, but um, we all do it because we love it, and yeah, it's just it's just something that comes with a job so it's um it's quite a busy it's quite a busy occupation and now that they're booking riders two weeks ahead stables it, it's just making things even a little bit more busier yeah i guess your week begins on mondays when the nominations come out and there's another 30 or more managers who are looking at the same nomination so it must be a scramble yeah, correct. Yeah, so Monday morning you wake up and, and you'll receive calls anywhere from 5 to 6 a.m. with stables wanting to book book the jockeys in for a week in advance, two weeks in advance, and then the nominations will come out that afternoon on a Monday and you'll go through them and then you have weights and then you have acceptances and, like I mentioned earlier, you have official trials and unofficial jump outs. So there's quite a lot to get through, but um, you work your way through it. Yeah. Let's say somebody rings for Ben Mellum or Billy Egan and they've both taken rides in a particular race. That's when I guess you can push the name of one of your other clients. Yeah, yeah, you do do that. Um, sometimes that stable has other riders that, that ride for them, so it doesn't always work out. But, um, yeah, you, you, it can work in with both riders or how many riders you do have in your, in your camp. So um, mm. you can do that, but... Um, you obviously need to be very organised and keep the trainers that you ride for and the stables that you ride for available so that they're able to use them and then obviously work your, work your way around them and, and try and get, obtain as many rides as you possibly can. Hmm. If you see a horse along the way that you feel you can get one of your riders on for whatever reason, do you chase that ride? Oh, definitely, yeah. I, I probably wouldn't be doing my job. To, to the best of my ability, if I didn't do that, so you're, you're always you're always looking at races, even if your jockeys aren't riding, and, and trying to identify horses moving forward that um, that was that would suit your riders, and also keeping keeping an eye out if, if jockeys are suspended, and obviously they may have rides booked, which which will which will um, then be available. So yeah, you're always trying to um, just be, be, be on top of everything and, and um, sort of be first in line. Yeah, there was a little story about a top jockey in Sydney a couple of years ago who queried his manager's judgment in booking him for a ride in a Group 3. Now, the manager told his jockey, and it was Hugh Bowman, that this particular mare would run much better than he thought it would. She won that Group 3 to Hugh's amazement. Two weeks later, she won the Doncaster. Natoya was her name. I'm sure you've had similar experiences. Uh, yeah, I have. That's amazing. Actually, Natoya was was the horse that Billy Egan actually rode in the Cox Plate. So there you ah. go. There's a little bit, a little bit of a link there. So, um, mm. yeah, you ha- you, ha- you do have experiences like that. Um, I tend to working with my jockeys. They don't leave it all to me, and it's something I appreciate because obviously they're the ones 
riding them track work. So their advice is very valuable. And you work as a team. That's what it's all about. And with the jockeys I manage, it's, it, it's also more, it's it's a friendship. It, it's and and that's very personal to me. And it just mm. with the emotion involved, it, it just it ties everything in together. That you, that you want to do the absolute best. And yeah, it's just great that you, yeah we're able to work in as a team and get the best out of one another. Mm. So is it true you're actually working two weeks ahead? You're booking rides for your jockeys for races that are a fortnight off. Yeah, that's right, John. So that's mainly for the metropolitan racing. It, it can mm. occur for provincial races as well, but um, you're sort of you're booking in your maid rides that, that you, you've been affiliated with two weeks in advance, and obviously Spring Carnival um, stables want to be organised. So you're doing that, and then you're also getting other rides sort of a week in advance, three or four days in, um, when the acceptances come out. So, mm. yeah, sort of every day is sort of a bit different, but, yeah, some, sometimes it could even be three weeks in advance if, if it's um, yeah. a, a really big race. Mm. Do you keep a worksheet or a chart of some kind on the desk in front of you at home so uh, you only need to glance at it to see which jockeys are booked for what horses? Yeah, I've got notes scribbled down. I'm very thankful that I've always been blessed with, with a, a an incredible memory. It's something mm. that um, a lot of people have told me over the years, so I'm very thankful and blessed that, that, that I have that. Um, but obviously, yeah, you do write things down in black and white because obviously um, you don't want anything to slip in your mind. Mm. I imagine one thing that would put a fly in the ointment for any jockey manager is when one of your jockeys suddenly cops a suspension. Must throw you into chaos. Yeah, that's probably the worst part of the job because you've put in a lot of hours to obtain these rides and it's something you're looking forward to one, two weeks in advance to ride these horses in in races and hopefully get the win and, and all that kind of stuff. And then when you cop a suspension, sometimes they're deserved, sometimes you think maybe you were done a little bit harshly, but... um. Mm. Yeah, it's 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 very um, it's very disheartening when you when you miss out a ride that that you, you know you should have been on because not only do you miss out the ride on that occasion, it can also lead to further down the track where mm. that that filling jockey wins on that horse and, and you don't really get the opportunity to to um to get back on that horse. So it can work both ways. Like obviously Ben was very lucky to get on Black Caviar through um, Luke Nolan's suspension. Mm. So it can work both ways, but um. Yeah, it's, it's definitely it's definitely better when it works in your advantage to, than uh, your disadvantage. Mm. You can't afford to leave a phone unanswered because that might be the group one call. Definitely, yeah. You always got to be available. Always have to have your phone on you. And if you do miss a call because you're on, you're on another call, whatever, you, you just want to make sure you call them back in um, in track record time. So yeah, um, yeah you've got to try and always be available at at, um, at all times. Matt, your story is pretty representative of the job being done by jockey agents all over Australia. They do a super job because when you look at it, there are only three or four realistic chances in most races and you've got 27 managers chasing those rides. So to get one of your boys on a winner must be very satisfying. Yeah, it is. It is, John. You've hit the nail on the head there. So um, I think, like in Victoria alone, there's there's 110 licensed jockeys, and you look most most days a uh, field size would be 12 or 14. So it doesn't it doesn't leave many rides up for grabs. But you, you just try and do do the job to the best of your ability, and 
form as many um, associations with stables as he can. And obviously the jockey comes into that a lot because they're the ones riding track work and, and whatnot. But um, I'm always trying to do my utmost best for, for my jockeys. And I try and manage the riders as if it was me riding. And I put I put 110% in and I try and just identify the, the, the quality and, and hopefully um, get as many winners as possible. There was a time when trainers spoke to jockeys personally about upcoming rides. Nowadays, you'd be more likely to talk to a racing manager than a trainer. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's right. So um, obviously, um, trainers are—they've got a lot on a lot on their plate these days. The industry has changed so much since since when not when I started managing in um, two thousand and five. So yeah, you speak to a lot of racing managers, and and, and that's fine. Um, Sometimes you will speak to trainers and, and other times you may even speak to owners. So there's a wide range of people that you speak to in, in order to um, obtain a ride. So, yeah, it's just it's just part of the job and you just work your way through it as best you can. Well, Matt, best of luck as you regenerate a very busy career. And just remember, you can always get on the quiz show circuit if things don't <laughs> work out. You're already a Group 1 performer at the top level. Yeah, thank you so much for that. I think I might, uh, I might just go out a winner. I think that might be, be me on the uh, on the on the quiz show circuit. But um, yeah, that's like I said, that's something that's just I won't forget that for the rest of my life. And yeah, it's just it's just incredible that what racing's given me th- throughout my entire life. I've been involved in racing thirty years and um, achieved quite a bit, which I'm very proud of. So um, yeah, long may it continue. Matt, been a delight. Uh, you're very highly regarded in a tough field and a very busy job. Uh, jockey management in Australia today has literally exploded. And please give my regards to your dad, Charlie. I definitely will, John. Thank you so much for um, giving me the opportunity to speak today. And um, I, I, know, I know my father will get a great kick out of this podcast. Matthew Alessi on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. Do any of your horses struggle to finish their feeds during a racing preparation? Have you been unhappy with the way they look on race day? Do what many other trainers do with those finicky horses and introduce them to Pride's easy performance by stimulating their appetites with Pride's highly palatable set recipe feed, you might find they're not leaving a flake in their feed bins. Correct nutrition helps racehorses to deal with the stresses of racing and training. It helps them to get that elusive win when they're in the right race, and most importantly, helps them to bounce back after the event. Pride's Easy Performance provides the ultimate muscle fuel to help horses get to the line while helping them to maintain inner health. Pride's Easy Performance the complete nutritional feed for equine performance athletes.